Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles. Last time we spent a lot of time talking about the Martians, how we were gradually moving from the Martians' perspective to the humans' perspective, and how now that there were more and more expeditions arriving, now that people were in fact setting up shop on Mars, how dangerous it was to the Martian legacy and to the Martian culture that all of this thing, all of these things were happening. Um, we emphasize that all of these acts of creation, all of these acts of invention, all of these acts of exploration um, imply a certain, you know, ebullience on the part of humans and, and their, you know, adventures to Mars, but they also come with it a heavy price, a, a major act of destruction. Um, as we see in stories like um, the the Green Morning, where all of the trees sort of spring up and, and take over Mars overnight because we do not fully appreciate the consequences of our actions, um, or alternatively in uh, in the Moon Be Still as Bright, where we saw Spender desperately trying to protect the Martian civilization while characters like Biggs or Park Hill were sort of heedlessly destroying it out of their own whimsy and indifference. Um, we ended with our discussion of Tomas and the night meeting, uh, as Tomas the human and the, the Martian who goes unnamed meet in the middle of the road and ask each other which one is the civilization coming and which one is the civilization passing. Um, and it is, again, unclear, as I emphasize there, which one is which, which one is, you know, the civilization that has reached its peak and surpassed it. Um, which civilization is dead and which civilization is alive, um, whether it is just a matter of time before the Martians are ascendant again. Here in the back half of the novel, though, we are going to get a very different kind of outlook. If the first half is very much about the Martians and how the Martians are sort of damaged and destroyed by human intervention, witting or unwitting, um, here in the back half we're going to be talking predominantly about humans. We will see the occasional Martian, sometimes in some very strange circumstances, sometimes not necessarily fitting with the characterization of the Martians as we've seen them before in this novel. Again, this is, at the end of the day, a collection of short stories that are sort of like uh, linked together through some vignettes and stuff. This was never you know, intended as one coherent sort of overarching narrative until after the fact. Um, but per primarily, we're going to be reflecting our knowledge about the Martians back on the humans at this point. Um, if the Martian society fell because it was decadent or complacent, um, the sort of thing that we talked about in the first sub several exp expeditions where humans were just perceived as a nuisance or as something unbelievable, um, and then finally, you know, as a threat, but too late to save the Martians from the disease that was already ravaging them. Uh, now we are going to see the Martians sort of as an endangered species in their own right, reflecting on the humans as an endangered species that doesn't realize how endangered it actually is. Um, now I should emphasize here in the back half we're going to have some pretty wild variations in quality. Um, again, these are all you know, short stories that were kind of loosely collected and configured into an overarching story about the, the human colonization of Mars. Um, these stories date all over the late 
1940s into 1950s, so you know many of them are very much disconnected from one another. Many of them were written for widely divergent purposes. Um, we will, you know, again, sort of see inconsistencies in the way that the Martians are portrayed, or the way that the history is portrayed, or the, the time lapses between one thing or another. Um, like, for example, the book does have a dating system for each of the stories. Um, like, basically everything we've read so far has taken place in, say, you know, four or five years, um, which doesn't actually track with some of the, the information that we find inside of each of the stories. Um, here, that's going to become more obvious, though. Like, before, it was very clear that there were four expeditions, and each one refers to the expeditions that have gone before. So, you know, we know uh, that there were only four expeditions. We know that they did occur relatively quickly over a certain period of time. Um, we know that they do get progressively more sort of invasive and aggressive as the as the time goes on. But here, it's really unclear exactly what the human civilization on Mars looks like. Um, we see that it is advancing. Uh, we are sort of informed via the vignettes, as well as the, the stories proper, that gradually more and more humans are coming to Mars. But it's kind of difficult to appreciate how many of them, and sometimes their reactions are going to be inconsistent with the framing. Uh, but more than that, the stories themselves are all over the place. Uh, they are less thematically unified, uh, less sort of thematically coherent, than the stories where, you know, gradually people are coming to Mars and, you know, the, the question of human versus Martian dominance is present and the deconstruction of the stories of, you know, humans conquering new territory or heroically exploring, boldly going where no man has gone before. You know, all that deconstruction is kind of secondary here. We are still dealing with hubris, though. Um, if there is one consistent theme across everything that's going on here, it's probably the theme of hubris. And we will see uh, most of these stories deal with humans kind of overreaching themselves or alternatively kind of pushing back against the institutions that are overreaching. Um, it's going to be a pretty downbeat kind of novel at this point. You know, not that it hasn't been downbeat up until this point. Um, but importantly, that tone is going to vary pretty wildly from story to story. It won't be consistently downbeat. There will be weird sort of deviations along the way. Um, so we're going to handle this one story by story. There's kind of no other way to do it as far as I can see. Um, we're going to be able to lean less on this sort of overarching structure and advancing narrative. Um, so basically, you know, I, I said from the outset this is one part short story collection, one part novel, um, and we should treat it on both levels. Last time I tended to emphasize its unity. Today we're going to be emphasizing its diversity and disparity. Um, we should also emphasize that we're going to get some deviations in the very publication history of this book. Uh, here in the second half. Um, several of the stories that have been included in the Martian Chronicles in the back half of the, of the novel as usually published um, have had a kind of tumultuous history in their own right. Uh, so, for example, the Fire Balloons uh, would have been published just before Interim in most modern editions of the Martian Chronicles, like since 1997, that's typical. Um, usually the Fire Balloons replaces Way in the Middle of the Air, um, 
but we're going to talk about the fire balloons when we hit the illustrated man because that's where I'm more familiar with the story and I believe that's where it first appeared. Um, we're going to talk about Way in the Middle of the Air today. Uh, largely because Way in the Middle of the Air doesn't appear in virtually any of Bradbury's other popular writings, um, largely because it was originally published in the Martian Chronicles, and then the Martian Chronicles became sort of the staple uh, for middle school and high school uh, English curricula. And Way in the Middle of the Air uses the N-word a lot, um, so as a consequence, it has been fairly thoroughly censored from most modern editions of the Martian Chronicles, and again, since the 1997 Bantam publication, uh, it hasn't shown up. Um, I emphasized last time that I specifically went out of my way to get like an old 1970s version of the Martian Chronicles so I could read way in the middle of the air, uh, because I do think it belongs here, and again, there's not many other places where you can find it. Um, and I want to talk about it, is kind of what it comes down to. Like, I think one of the things that I find the most striking about Bradbury's career is that a lot of the things that he was most concerned with have to do with his own publication history. Uh, namely, you know, it's going to be obvious from our discussion of Usher 2 today, and it's going to become even more obvious next time when we start talking about Fahrenheit 451, um, that Bradbury is very preoccupied with the idea of censorship. Um, censorship being more than what we usually refer to it as, like anyone worth their salt who says, okay, we're, we need to talk about censorship, usually somebody is going to come out of the wings and say, hey, censorship is only when the government does it, the government presents or prevents people from reading certain things at certain times, um, and if we are being strictly obvious, that's not what is happening in either Usher 2 or in uh, Fahrenheit 451. Bradbury has a very different understanding of the danger of burning books, preventing things from being read. It is less connected to government oversight in Bradbury's works than it is to popular pressure, I say carefully. Um, again, we'll talk about that in its own right, but the, the censorship, as we understand it in this broad sense, as Bradbury likes to talk about it, is exactly what's happening in the Martian Chronicles, um, and specifically with the story way in the middle of the air. Um, Bradbury, you know, in an interview considerably afterward, emphasizes that, you know, it's not up to people to butcher his works. Like, he created them, he put them together with a certain intention, and if people don't like it, then they are welcome not to read it. Um, you can't very well just hack it to pieces, turn it into something that's more palatable, and call it a day. Um, so I imagine, like, I don't actually have Bradbury on record on this one, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he does refer to it in that interview. Um, I imagine he was rather distraught about the way that the Martian Chronicles had been changed to suit more, quote, sensitive readers. Um, he is very vocal about some of his less-known works. Like, for example, he wrote a, you know, theater adaptation of Moby Dick, which stars only men, and a whole bunch of people were protesting it because it was an all-male cast. And he's like, then put on a you know, put on a show that is all women. That's fine with me. Like, it's Moby Dick. Really, what are you expecting? It's kind of hard to retell Herman Melville's story of a bunch of dudes on a boat hunting whales if you're going to try and shoehorn women into it where they don't belong based on the context of the, the history and otherwise. Um, 
notice he doesn't have anything to say about, like, hey, if you want to cast a woman as a man, that's a, totally fine with him. He doesn't seem to, to care about that. What he cares about is the way that this is being received. Um, so let's talk about Way in the Middle of the Air. Like, we are already very much sort of embroiled in this, this censorship issue, so let's confront what is actually going on here. Um, again, because I anticipate that you haven't read it, because it is rather hard to track down unless you, you know, do an internet search and find some PDF version lying around, or if you do, in fact, track down an older copy of the book or find wherever, you know, it is currently being published, if it's being published these days. Way in the Middle of the Air is the first of our stories proper to take place entirely on Earth. Like, a couple of the vignettes take place on Earth, like Rocket Summer, the initial one that we talked about, where the rockets are all leaving Earth and it's melting the, the ice from the window panes. That takes place entirely on Earth. Uh, but Way in the Middle of the Air is unusual because it is a story about Mars, but it is entirely set on Earth. Um, now, the premise here is that all the black folks in the Deep South are leaving for Mars. That's the story. Like, that's it. The, the entire premise is, can be summarized in that sentence. All of the black folks who have been oppressed and, you know, suffered the indignities of racism for many years decide that they've had it, so they sell their possessions, they all get together, they all buy rockets, and they all go to Mars. Now, the story is told from the perspective of the white folks watching. Like, it's a bunch of white Southerners, relatively well-off, but you get the, fact, the sense that they're not, like, affluent, they're not actually rich, they're sort of, sort of in the white trash territory. Um, and they are watching as this sea of black people is just walking along, moving through the streets, heading to the launch site. Uh, the story primarily focuses on the main character, Tease. Um, Mr. Tease, as, as, we're, as we're told. Um, he is here with his wife and apparently like his father or something, um, as well as a couple of other folks. Um, and Samuel Tease, our main character, is unabashedly a racist. Um, he is presented as being racist. He frequently employs the N-word in talking about the black people heading to Mars, like literally in the third line. Um, we get the N-word, and it's going to be repeated often throughout this story. Um, and importantly, Samuel Tease's responsibility here, what he feels driven to do, is stop as many black people as possible from getting on the rockets and going to Mars. And these are in small, mean, petty ways. Um, he keeps emphasizing that, you know, this person can't go to Mars until he's done his chores. He's, he's agreed to do this, therefore he is held by his word. He cannot go to Mars until, like, he does the work that he's supposed to do. So this person comes into the back room, and he does the job, and finally, like, he does it really quickly, and Tease reluctantly has to let him go. Um, then he calls off another person, and he's like, hey, you still owe me 50 bucks. Like, until you pay me, I'm not going to let you go to Mars. And when he does, all of the black people in the vicinity pony up like two, three dollars until they've gotten the complete amount of the debt, and then they pay Tease off. Like, the debt is now square. Once Tease realizes that he can't use any conventional means to keep people here on Earth, he and a couple of his buddies get into a car and drive after 
all of the black people, only to realize that all the stuff that they had been carrying, the grandfather clocks and the beds and the possessions, the this sort of motley collection of, you know, household goods that all of these people have been transporting as though they are taking these things to Mars with them, have actually been abandoned, strewn around the road to make sort of makeshift roadblocks, and Tease cannot get to the rockets in time before they launch. Um, so, this is a story about black people leaving Earth because it sucks there. It is about white racism and using every possible petty, stupid reason to keep black people oppressed. And importantly, it is, at the end of the day, about just how miserable Tease himself is. Um, kind of the key moment in the story, after he, he calls this one black person over, and says, you know, you owe me like fifty bucks. How are you? How are, you're not allowed to leave until you until you pay up? Um, this person says to him, like after in fact they they uh, after in fact they they make the arrangement after they he pays him off. He asks, um, Mr. Tease, Mr. Tease, what are you going to do nights from now on? What are you going to do nights, Mr. Tease? And the implication here, we get a paragraph to follow this up, the implication is that Tisa's been joining lynch mobs at night. Like, it's really vivid and not at all beating around the bush here. Um, this is page 127 in my text, but again, like, this is from 1976, I want to say. Um, he remembered nights when men drove to his house, their knees sticking up sharp and their shotguns sticking up sharper, like a car full of cranes under the night trees of summer, their eyes mean, honking the horn and him slamming his door, a gun in his hand, laughing to himself, his heart racing like a ten-year-old's, driving off down the summer night road, a ring of hemp rope coiled on the car floor, fresh shell boxes making every man's coat look bunchy. How many nights over the years, how many nights of the wind rushing in the car, flopping their hair over their mean eyes, roaring as they picked a tree, a good strong tree, and wrapped on a shanty door. The implication here is clearly that Tees enjoys his position of power, only understands himself as a person who takes joy and takes self-worth in making these black people's lives miserable, both in these small, petty, daylight ways, and also by systematically going out and murdering them at night. Now, the story has a complicated legacy. Um, I talk about it at some length in one of my essays on my blog, uh, in my or Decolonizing My Library uh, series, like Bradbury is one of the first ones that I talk about and I mention and discuss at some length way in the middle of the air, so I don't want to get like too bogged down in the same material here. Um, I, instead, I want to sort of look at this story in the greater context of what's going on in the Martian Chronicles. Um, but I do want to sort of hit the main points here, why this is you know, so objectionable and so controversial, as well as why, what Bradbury is actually accomplishing here, because both things are true. Um, on the one hand, the first objection that is usually leveled against this story is that it's written entirely from a white person's perspective. Um, namely, this is written from the perspective of Tease, who is a racist and a white supremacist. Um, this kind of excludes the actual black perspective here, like, again, the black people are usually just described as being part of this sea. They are uh, usually not even given all, 
like names for that matter, um, except insofar as like Tease calls them out of the crowd and some sort of singles them out like you know a lion taking on the weakest of the antelopes. Um, the, this sort of predator-prey relationship is very strongly implied here. Um, and again, the story is criticized because it doesn't align the reader with the oppressed black person. Instead, it aligns them with the oppressive white person. Um, but I honestly think Bradbury has a really good answer for this, especially earlier on in the text. Um, remember when we were talking about, you know, in the moon still be as bright, when Spender comes down and says, you know, I am the last Martian, and Cherokee, the Cherokee uh, descendant, says, I don't see a Martian here. And I talked about, like, that's the line. Uh, Spender is going too far in accepting the Martian culture, in accepting the Martian lineage, and in claiming that he is their inheritor, though they have not left him anything and not given him anything. This is what separates Spender from Captain Wilder, who recognizes his own allegiance to humanity. Notice that the same thing is basically being done here by Bradbury. Bradbury, at least here, doesn't align himself with the oppressed black person because Bradbury isn't qualified to write from that perspective. Um, keep in mind, like, this is no slight against, you know, th this is not to sort of join the, the chorus of idiotic voices who are saying that, you know, censorship is bad and that white, white people should be able to write whatever they want. Um, but I should emphasize here that Bradbury is kind of, you know, his, his legacy in this story is going to be kind of damned either way. Um, if Bradbury writes from the perspective of the black person, he's going to be accused of trying to identify with a marginalized group that he himself does not actually understand or experience. If he aligns himself with the white person, then he is criticized, as he is here, for not respecting the perspective of the oppressed black person. Bradbury is a white dude. And he knows he's a white dude, and he respects the fact that he is a white dude, and respects what that means for his ability to write about black characters, at least here in this story. Bradbury feels comfortable putting himself in the shoes of the white supremacist in order to skewer that perspective, in order to utterly reject it. Um, and he very unambiguously does here. Um, but to go the next step and, and, you know, put the audience into the perspective of the black person, that might be beyond his comfort zone, I say carefully. Um, Bradbury shouldn't feel comfortable doing this. Bradbury knows he shouldn't feel comfortable doing this, so Bradbury does not do this. Um, now, he does, in fact, break this rule later. Uh, we'll see in the Illustrated Man that he does make a foray into under looking at the world from the black perspective. Like, we'll actually see the sequel to this story in The Illustrated Man. And I'll be honest, that one works less, in my opinion, as I write in my essay. Um, I think that is where he does go too far, where he does sort of assume a perspective that he cannot, like, reasonably be allowed to take. That's where he is saying something as a representative of a race he does not belong to, as a representative of a series of experiences that he has not personally had. Um, so I defend his choice here. What I find less defensible is 
honestly something that Bradbury is pretty guilty of throughout many of his stories. Namely, in order to characterize the people missing, the, the black people gone from the Deep South, he typically leans on some pretty ugly stereotypes. Um, so, for example, like there's two or three references to, you know, the watermelon patches being totally abandoned. Um, and there not being anyone there, or and there's even one particularly egregious reference to, you know, no sound of, and he uses a word that I'm not going to use here, uh, that is usually describing young black children. No sound of young black children running around. Like, this is the problem with this story. And it's honestly a problem with a lot of Bradbury's stories. Bradbury likes evocative imagery, sensory imagery. Uh, he likes to, instead of, you know, dwelling on big abstract concepts, he likes to make those big abstract concepts into physical details. Um, when Spender describes, you know, like how we're going to take over Mars, uh, it, it's about tearing Mars apart. We're going to tear the skin off. We're going to put up a hot dog stand. Um, you know, this, these very, like, evocative, very visual, very uh, sensory details. So, you know, when Bradbury, as I read before, describes what it feels like to be part of a lynch mob, he describes it in terms of evocative details. The rope in the back seat, the shotguns sticking up along with the men's knees, um, you know, finding a good strong tree. Like, these are the details that he tends to dwell on. He doesn't tell us that he's part of a lynch mob. He gives us all of the most evocative details, and in doing so, shows us why Tees wants to do this, why this is important to Tees. You know, we get a glimpse of Tees's own internal memories, his fond memories of being with a bunch of people, people who he cares about, you know, the all the sort of connections to camaraderie and friendship, but doing something so horrible and reprehensible that we, the reader, are meant to sort of take a step back and be like, whoa, that's not acceptable behavior, and we should be ashamed of ourselves for letting this go on as much as we do. Likewise, when Bradbury takes that sort of evocative sets of details to discussing, hey, now all of the black people are marching out to the rockets, it's the black people are a sea, the black people are a river. Uh, when we talk about how they're, the black people aren't where they usually are, we're talking about, you know, this is page 123, it was as if the, a great wind had washed the land clean of sounds. There was nothing. Skeleton doors hung open on leather hinges. Rubber tire swings hung in the silent air, uninhibited. The washing rocks of the river were empty, and the watermelon patches, if any, were left alone to heat their hidden liquors in the sun. Now, on some level, I think Bradbury is trying to celebrate Brad black culture, he just doesn't understand what that looks like. As a white dude, he understands black people from the perspective of an observer. He, too, is kind of a sucker for the Hollywood stereotypes of black people eating watermelons and living in shacks with creaky screen doors, and he adopts these admittedly vivid and evocative images as a shorthand because he doesn't actually know what he's talking about here. And again, he does this all the time. 
Um, he frequently uses these sort of shorthand images to talk about childhood, especially his own childhood, like dandelion wine is full of these sorts of quasi-sentimental, very evocative images. Um, he, you know, frequently populates, like, his the, the other parts of Mars, like when we get to the, the off-season, he talks about, like, the hot dog smells from the, the hot dog cart that Park Hill has set up. Um, all, again, very evocative, rooted in noise and, and, and sound, taste, and touch. You know, all very effective writing, but all, again, being used as a shorthand for something that he only wants to sort of point to obliquely. Here is where it is egregious. Like, nobody really gets upset at Bradbury for doing this when he's sentimentalizing childhood. Um, nobody gets terribly upset with Bradbury for doing this when it's about, you know, white dudes getting excited about landing on Mars for the first time. Um, nobody gets too upset by this when in Usher 2, you know, the creator of the House of Usher or the recreation of the House of Usher talks about, like, the skittering metal rats and spiders and stuff. Like... Yeah, that works for what Bradbury's doing in those stories, but here, where these stereotypes lie in a direct contrast to the actual experience, the lived experiences of those times, Bradbury seems to be painting a version of a sentimentalized ver or view of black life, where he is also sort of contrasting that with a horror that is represented by Tease and his cronies going out and literally murdering them. It doesn't fit, in short. The stereotype is pernicious for a reason. It dehumanizes the people that Bradbury is trying to celebrate here. And while Bradbury does sort of love black people because he loves watermelon, that's not the same as loving black people because he understands their situation, their struggle, their, you know, the suffering that they're going through. So on the one hand, this works. This is a clear condemnation and indictment of racism in a time where very few were willing to write about this stuff. And honestly, Bradbury's Way in the Middle of the Air has been hailed by some writers as one of the most you know, provocative science fiction stories on the subject of racism in the history of the genre, even 40, 50 years after this story was written. Like... Until the days of Octavia Butler and N.K. Jemison, you know, we're not going to see this kind of really aggressive, you know, antagonistic approach to racism in science fiction generally. Like, either because black writers are not allowed to write about this stuff um, when they do, in fact, get to write, or because white writers just aren't willing to touch these subjects. You know, I've read a lot of science fiction in my day, and again, like, as much as we celebrate the golden age of science fiction, Asimov and Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke, they were very much writing without any interest in discussing racism. Like, only from time to time does it even come up, much less get this kind of direct attack, the way that Bradbury is willing to go here against Tease. So, on the one hand, this story is kind of a mess. It fails for artistic reasons, which seep into the, its own moral and race, uh, racial failings. But on the other hand, it is impressive as an accomplishment, and it is evocative. It works. As a story, it is a pretty well-told good story. And as an indictment of racism, it is a pretty compelling indictment. 
it rejects and exposes a lot of what's going on in the 1950s that most people are just not at all willing to talk about. Uh, Bradbury is willing to confront this sort of systemic and social or socially wide just tacit acceptance of the sort of horrors that are being perpetrated on a daily basis down in the Deep South. Bradbury will talk about that, um, and he is willing to talk about that when a lot of writers who are otherwise just trying to make money are not willing to. And honestly, some of this is endemic to the genre. Like, many of these writers, Asimov and Heinlein and so on, were writing for John W. Campbell, who was from what I understand, an avowed racist in his own right, and was way more sympathetic to the Nazi party in World War II than he was to necessarily, like, the Allies, you know, totally destroying Hitler's vision. It's messy. It's ugly. Um, and science fiction has always kind of been colored by this, has been informed by this sort of racist perspective. Bradbury is breaking out of it, and he is one of the first to do that. Um, so as much as he doesn't do a very good job, as much as we, you know, in the contemporary world look back at him and say, hmm, he really didn't get the details right, he clearly doesn't understand the black experience, no, no he does not. And he is willing to admit that, except when he goes into all of his sort of waxing nostalgic about watermelons. Um... Fenris and Jelly Clark, one of our contemporary fantasy and science fiction writers, he recently published a, a number of books, culminating recently with uh, The Master of Jinn, which is excellent, and I highly recommend that you read it, um, wrote about this story and emphasized that Bradbury just needs to lay off the watermelons. Otherwise, he admires the story and appreciates what it has to say. Um, this is going to kind of be a problem with Bradbury, and it's going to be a problem with a number of writers, honestly. Like, I can't help but think of G.K. Chesterton here. Like, Chesterton, too, gets really enamored with the imagery associated with, you know, China and the Far East, or, or India, or, you know, black culture. Um, he frequently stereotypes nations and frequently sort of boils a nation down to these recognizable uh, sort of consumable tropes, something that we in the modern era just do not tolerate. But he does so admiring. He does so with this recognition of, you know, what is so good about these other perspectives. It's kind of celebrating them. Occasionally, he will definitely shoot, shoot at them, like, you know, present them as a straw man account for a perspective that he doesn't agree with and present his, you know, reasoning for why his white Christian perspective is superior. But overall, Chesterton, like Bradbury, is excited about the diversity of the world. He is excited about the glimpses he is seeing into these other perspectives. And, you know, this ties into a really sort of huge problem in understanding literature from a racial perspective. Like, there is literature that is flat out, you know, like, no question, racist. That is straight up white supremacist, unapologetically arguing for the superiority of one race or over another. Like, I've made my arguments about George Bernard Shaw's Man and Superman. I've made my arguments about, you know, various philosophers like Nietzsche or Schopenhauer prioritizing or privileging one race or over another. Like, literature and culture is abundant. 
with examples of writers who thought they were meaning well, but at the end of the day concluded unapologetically that white people were superior to every other race on the planet, and that's just the way it was. That's what science told them, according to their arguments. It's nightmarish. It is horrifying. And it is difficult to sort of separate those writers' good contributions to the history of science, culture, literature, etc., from the fact that at the end of the day, they were horrible racists with a very backward kind of perspective on the world. Um, but I separate those kinds of thinkers from the people who are, in fact, trying to get at and understand these cultures and are failing to because of the limitations of their time, their energy, or just because their enthusiasm gets the better of them. Um, you know, when we talk about, say, Orientalism, which is probably like the best example of this, you get into these discussions where, you know, yes, we are representing Turks or like the, the Middle East as being, you know, exotic and, and unknown and mysterious. And you get all these images like in the Phantom of the Opera about like harems and, you know, oppressive sultans and viziers. And we get the publication of, you know, the Thousand and One Nights, like heavily misunderstood by Sir Francis Bacon. Like, um, sorry, Burton, not Burton not Bacon, Burton, um, like, there's clearly a long history of these sorts of, quote, celebrations of other cultures that end up thoroughly filtered through an exotifying lens, a lens that makes these people out to be wildly different than ourselves, their culture to be completely unknown and mysterious and therefore exciting and novel. Um, and I think Bradbury is guilty of something similar here. Like, he is guilty of whatever the equivalent of Orientalism is for black culture and black people here in the 1950s. Um, but, again, I find that crime to be less than either the straight-up white supremacy that you're seeing in things like Birth of a Nation, or, alternatively, the widespread silence that we're hearing from the likes of, again, Asimov, Heinlein, and Clark. Writers who should be fighting back, but aren't, either because of ignorance or indifference. Bradbury cares, and while his, again, writing reflects his lack of knowledge, his complete ignorance of the realities of the situation, he's still working way harder to fight racism than are a lot of his writer, fellow writers at the time. This is hardly saying that he's perfect by any extent of the imagination. This is what fascinates me about Bradbury, in fact. Like, I admire and appreciate the same enthusiasm that drives him to make these sorts of wild mistakes. Remember how we started our Martian Chronicles conversation by saying this is about wonder. Bradbury wonders here. He is excited. He likes the image of the black people eating watermelon. And that's a messed up image, we know now. But it was an image that he had, that he had probably carried around because everything in the media at that point had informed him that this was what black people looked like and did. That sucks, but I'm not entirely sure we can blame Bradbury 100% for this. Should he have known better? Yes. Should he have stayed silent if he hadn't known better? Not necessarily. So, that aside, again, I probably spent way too much time talking about it, way too much time rehashing stuff that I'd already written about before. Let's move on here.
Because once again, we see Bradbury running into trouble in the next story, Usher 2. Um, on the one hand, I gotta say, like, Usher 2 is a really tough one for me to talk about. Um, just because on the one hand, like, every time I read it, I'm grumpy about it. Like, again, we see Bradbury using these evocative, shorthand kind of details. Again, we see Bradbury kind of missing a lot of thematic nuance. Again, we see Bradbury getting more enthusiastic than actually insightful. Um, Usher 2 is very straightforwardly, it's this rich dude who's landed on Mars and has built a apparent, like, working facsimile of Poe's House of Usher from the fall of the House of Usher. And the entire story that Bradbury presents to us is just Poe reference after Poe reference after Poe reference after, like, L. Frank Baum reference after, you know, just a wide variety of sort of fantasy and science fiction and, like, speculative fiction, uh, stories that Bradbury is familiar with, all of which he is paying homage to and celebrating here in the story. Um, now, the plot is that this guy has erected this house of nightmares and fantasies and wonders as a direct sort of affront to the moral culture people who are kind of like indifferently represented here in a couple of characters. Um, but who basically, like, apparently their job is to root out all fantasy and science fiction and, and speculative fiction and destroy it. Um, and as a consequence, this house is not just, you know, this giant monument to the imaginative works of the human uh, psyche, but also it's a death trap. And he's, like, the, the creator of the house um, is systematically murdering each one of the people who comes in. So Stendhal kills Garrett, the, the sort of inspector for the, the moral culture people. He invites a whole bunch of these, like, bigwigs who run the moral culture, like, society or whatever, uh, to have dinner there, and he systematically murders them in typically Poish fashions. Like, we get the, the apes stuffing one of the, the women up the chimney, like, in the murders of the Rue Morgue. No, we do not talk about the orangutan. Um... We get, like, the, the, the pendulum killing off one of the characters. We get, you know, Stendhal himself, like, murders Garrett, cask Montiato fashion, walling him in into the cellar. Um, it's just reference after reference after reference. And on the one hand, I find this repugnant. <laughs> like, I'm not going to beat around the bush here. I love Ray Bradbury, and I love the same stuff that Ray Bradbury loves. I absolutely admire Edgar Allan Poe. I am in love with his stories. Like, I've read each of the stories that Stendhal is referencing here, like, a dozen times each. I know The Mask of the Red Death. I know The Telltale Heart. I know The Castle of Montiato. I know The Fall of the House of Usher. Like, I know these stories practically by heart at this point, and I love them. I love them to death. Um, and it's clear from this story that Bradbury loves them to death as well. And I share that with him. Like, I love Bradbury because we love the same things. It's part of what draws me to him. Um, but I also recognize that what makes Poe work is the pacing and the, the tone and, you know, all of the care that Poe takes, like, crafting these sentences and crafting these sort of dreadful images that just slowly build and build and Build until the horror just becomes overwhelming. Um, it's about dread, and it's about pacing, and that's what Poe was such a master at, and Bradbury misses it like a champ here. Like, there is no payoff. There is no build-up. 
Um, there is just wild image after wild image and, you know, reference to after reference, homage after homage, with this big cataclysmic finish where everybody dies and Stendhal flies off in a helicopter. And that's it. Like, we don't get anymore. We don't know why the moral culture people are all that bad. Like, we're told that, you know, they, they prosecute people for, for having these fantasies. We get that, like, Stendhal is a lover of these stories and used to write these stories before they were censored. Uh, we get that his his friend used to be, or, or his friend Pikes used to be an actor in old scary movies like Lon Chaney or Boris Karloff. Like, these are the exact references that Stendhal refers to. And you know that Bradbury is a deep lover of, like, the old Frankenstein and Dracula movies as well. Um, we get that. Like, it's all clear that Bradbury is bringing his love to this story and that it is just dripping off the page. Um, but he doesn't do justice to these things. Um, you know, the, there's this great line in Montaigne, one of his essays, where he writes that, you know, it's dangerous to quote people who are wiser than we are. Um, and Bradbury is doing exactly that here. Like, sometimes Bradbury can incorporate one poem or one story or one detail into his stories that he's borrowing from somewhere else, and it just stabs like a knife. You know, like, in, uh, the, in the Moon Be Still is Bright, he drops that Byron poem right in the middle of the story, and it just nails the theme so hard, and you're just sitting there reeling as, like, he recites this poem, and then Biggs vomits all over the Martian, Martian mosaic. Or alternatively, when we get to the, uh, uh, There Will Come Soft Rains, and we hear the poem being recited by the house right before it, like, bursts into flame and is destroyed, we again get that very evocative image of nostalgia and the sort of abandonment of human institutions in the wake of the, these humans dying. Um, it's just incredibly vivid, and it's clear once again that Bradbury both loves these works, but also understands them and manages to weave them into the greater project that he has at stake. But here it's just so fast and so hard and so quick that nothing lands. Like, you don't get any dread of the characters being killed. If anything, Bradbury is just reveling in their destruction. And on the one hand, I imagine that's because he's bitter. Like, straight up, no apologies, bitter. He is mad. Either because some work of his was censored, or because something that he loved was censored, who knows. You know, it's 1950, it's the late 1940s, we're talking about, like, post-war America, it's getting pretty conservative over here in the wake of World War II. Um, it's entirely possible that Bradbury was watching some of his favorite stories not get republished or get thoroughly sanitized for some television adaptation or something. You know, the works of Edgar Rice Burroughs being called out for being you know, too violent or too horrifying or being wrong for children. And Bradbury, I can imagine just sitting there rankling, like being just upset, every hair on every pore of his body standing up straight as he bares his teeth and just, like, gets his pen ready for a vivid takedown here. And in that sense, I think this is more cathartic than effective. Like, Bradbury probably feels a lot better having systematically sent all of his detractors and censors to their horrible deaths in Poe fashion. Um, but notice, 
he's going to do it a lot better when we get to Fahrenheit 451, where we actually get to see not just, you know, the, like, the horrible comeuppance, but also the reason, the, the terrible world that is created by a world stripped of its fantasy, of its intellect, of its, you know, careful consideration. Um, here in Usher 2, it just doesn't come off. We don't see the stakes. We just see a mat, an angry person, Stendhal, with a whole lot of money, which kind of makes him less, you know, le less easy to empathize with, systematically murdering a bunch of people who we really don't have that much of a connection to, except that they're a bunch of stuck-up twats who are, you know, going around taking all the kids' stories away, which were only told and not shown. So in that sense, I really don't think the story works. But at the same time, it's the story I most vividly remember from this whole collection, and I think I always will. It is just filled to brimming with these evocative images, silly images, like the, the copper rats that scurry across, or the copper bats in the, in the, the attic. Like, yeah, there's an ape, and it like beats the crap out of Garrett, and it stuffs this woman up into the, into the chimney, and we don't talk about the orangutan. Um... Like, we get these just silly, over-the-top, ridiculous images, you know, all of Poe's devices, which at this point are kind of passe. Like, I'm thinking of the Vincent Price movies of, like, The Pit and the Pendulum, which are just sort of laughably ridiculous in its attempt to sort of, like, layer on all this melodrama. Like, I love Vincent Price, do not get me wrong. Like, that man is one of the greatest treasures that this country has ever had. But nonetheless, like... The silly, schlocky, campy quality, as, at the same time, is this story's greatest weakness and this story's greatest strength. It is the thing I most remember about it, and that makes it stand out from everything else in this novel. But it is so out of place with everything else in this novel. You know, so many of these stories that we've talked about are serious and, like, they have gravitas, this weight to them. You know, here we are in this novel that is effectively about, like, one dying civilization serving as the mirror to humanity's own sort of self-destruction and self-immolation. And here we have this ridiculous story with bats and rats and posts Poe imagery and this dude who's just like merrily bumping off people as though, you know, he and Tim Curry are hanging around in Clue. Like, it doesn't fit at all. And I can't tell if it's because it's too good or too bad for this novel, honestly. Um, so we're not going to dwell on this. Like, we'll definitely come back to the censorship issue for sure. I definitely want to talk about that a lot when we get to Fahrenheit 451, which will start next week. And I imagine I'll be referring back to Usher 2 to sort of like talk about how that nascent idea in Usher 2 would develop into the sophistication that we see in Fahrenheit 451. The really stirring images and the, the much better pacing that Bradbury uses to kind of build his, his world without books. Um, but for now, this is such a weird story, and, and it's in such a weird place. Um, so, moving on, let's talk about The Martian. Um, the Martian, I think, is honestly, like, it's a fairly forgettable story in its own right, but contextually, I think it's really important here. Um, so the setup is we have the, this older family, the Lafarges, who have apparently lost... Uh, their young son, Tom. And one day, they're sitting around the house, minding their own business, 
There's a knock at the door, and Tom is right there. Just as they remember him, hasn't aged a day, and Mrs. Lafarge immediately adopts him and wants him to be around. Mr. Lafarge realizes what's going on, and he asks, you're one of the Martians, aren't you? This is apparently something that has happened before. Martians, again, as we know, are telepathic. Um, but it would appear that at least this Martian and some of the others that have been encountered by the humans since they've colonized Mars, some of those Martians are apparently, like, controlled by human thoughts. You know, telepathy is a two-way street. Yes, you can communicate your thoughts to others, but if your telepathy doesn't have, like, a shutdown, if you are forced to listen to other people's thoughts all the time, that can be pretty harrowing, I imagine. So it would appear that our Martian has taken on the, the, the form of Tom because the longing of the Lafarges is so great that it has, in fact, influenced him and caused him to sort of, like, as a response put up Tom's appearance. Now this obviously gets very out of control very quickly. Um, in typical Bradburyan fashion, things go wrong pretty early. Namely, Mrs. Lafarge wants to take Tom to town. Tom is really nervous about this because already once he was like walking over by a neighbor's and the neighbor thought that he was somebody else and he almost got, quote, trapped as that neighbor's missing daughter. Um, so it's clear that the danger presented to the Martian here is that other humans will impose their own desires upon him, and he will get locked or trapped into somebody else's family because their desires are stronger than the Lafarge's. As it happens, that's totally what goes down. Mr. Lafarge does, in fact, rescue him, convert him back to being Tom, but in the process of their escape, he is exposed to too many other humans, all looking for too many other things, and he dies under the strain of it all. Now, Story-wise, it's a good story. I like it. It's one of those that is effective, it's evocative, it's not, like, especially memorable or over-the-top. Like, this is definitely in the same sort of territory as many American fables. Like, I'm reminded explicitly of the monkey's paw pretty frequently here. But in the context of the greater novel, like, the... I think that this is really important because it very much points the finger at human desire here. Um... As we've said, like, wonder is the key underlying principle here. Like, Bradbury is excited about those who wonder, excited about wonderful things, and sort of upset with those who do not, or with those who belittle the wondrous things that Bradbury admires or appreciates. But, again, along with that comes this sort of recognition and appreciation for the destructive effects of wonder. You know, if Bradbury is, in fact, excited about rockets, he also recognizes that rockets can destroy. If he is excited about, you know, human adventures to Mars, he recognizes that humans' adv adventures to Mars could very well result in the destruction of an entire Martian culture, which he would also wonder and appreciate at. Here we see the sort of crux of this, desire. We see that Mars, you know, as Spender talked about, if we don't understand it, if we don't, like, if we can't turn it into something that's our own, then we'll rip the skin off and we'll tear it apart and we'll, you know, distort it and destroy it and give it the wrong names and all of that. And, you know, the captain is like, it's too big and it's too good. But Spender says, no, we can still ruin big good things. Here we have this sort of microcosmic example of everything that this novel has been telling us so far. 
Here we have a Martian literally changing its shape to suit the desires of the humans around it, just as Mars has been reshaped by all of the human desires of those who have come to it. And in doing so, this is an act of violence that ultimately destroys the underlying thing in the first place. What we want about Mars is that it can fulfill all of our dreams, that it can be an escape from white people for the black people of the Deep South, that it can be this wonderful culture of you know beautiful architecture and beautiful artwork and literature for Spender the archaeologist to pour over. It can be this world where Park Hill sets up a hot dog stand and where you know people are going to come through and buy hot dogs and he'll be rich. You know it offers a solution. It offers a fulfillment to all of our dreams, just as this Martian takes on the form of this lost child of the Lafarges. But the more people want to turn it into the thing that fulfills their dreams, the more Mars will be unable to do that. And the more we will, in fact, destroy Mars in all of these cross-purposes. So when Tom, is, Tom the Martian is forced to choose between being the Lafarge's child or the child of this other family or the, the uh, fugitive that the policeman is looking for, he just his skin is literally described as though it's melting from his face, that he cannot keep up with all of these desires. He cannot be all of these things to all of these people. And it's the very force of their desire, the very fact of their desire, that destroys him. And in a sense, again, this is exactly what has happened here. You know, the guy who wanted to breathe on Mars planted trees, and now Mars is different than it was before. It can't be the same alien landscape that Spender appreciated. The Mars of, you know, beautiful towers and, and skyscrapers and art, you know, isn't the same one that Park Hill wants Mars to be. He just wants to make money off of his hot dog stand. Um, all of these people disagreeing is what's going to destroy Mars. And that's the sort of danger that Bradbury is pointing to here. Uh, so I think, again, like the story itself kind of fades into the background of all of the more evocative and more sort of like imaginative stories here because it is small and it is kind of local and it is sad in a quiet way. Um, but it is very much a reflection of everything that this book has been telling us up until this point, and valuable for that reason. Um, which brings us to the off-season, which I'm not even sure what I'm doing with the off-season, honestly. Like, the off-season is the second story that actually seems that uses many of the same characters that we've seen before. Um, namely, this is the story of Park Hill, the guy who we last saw shooting out the windows of the Martin, Martian skyscrapers before the captain of the fourth expedition decked him. Um, and Park Hill has, in fact, set up here on Mars. Like, he has built his hot dog stand, which is almost certainly a direct reflection of Spender's prophecy that we would have built hot dog stands at the Temple of Karnak in Egypt if it wasn't so out of the way. Like, Park Hill is literally building his hot dog stand on this major thoroughfare in Mars, waiting for all the rockets to come from Earth so he can make money hand over fist and really make his living here. Um, so we have literally the exact image that Park that Spender was so frightened of. Park Hill taking Mars, making it his own, and erecting a hot dog stand, defiling it, 
And on the one hand, Bradbury has nothing against hot dogs. Like, it's obvious. There's all of these great images of, like, hot dogs cooking and, you know, the smell of the onions and the relish and so on. Like, it's clear that Bradbury loves himself a good hot dog when, in fact, he can get one. The trouble is who's making them and where he is making them. The inappropriateness of the situation. See, Park Hill... Park Hill is not a good character. He has not learned any lessons from his experiences with Spender and the captain in the fourth expedition. He has not become any more reverent of Martian culture, if anything, just the contrary. Um, this story begins with a Martian approaching him and Park Hill shooting that Martian when the Martian pulls out a device that he thinks might be a weapon. It's not. We're getting a classic example of, you know, the, the like, white authoritative aggressor taking on a marginalized person here, you know, and it just escalates from here. Like, Park Hill is then chased by Martians, and he thinks that they're coming to kill him to avenge the, the loss of the, the one that he killed, so he kills them as well, he destroys their ships, he in fact has one of their ships somehow, so he is on a Martian ship, and he's even, like, called out for it, like, that doesn't belong to you, You sh that that's an ancient vessel, you know, it's got important significance to us, and Park Hill does not respect this, he just uses it his own way, and in his frustration and his euphoria and his adrenaline, he, like, even goes so far as to shoot to destruction numerous Martian cities that he passes as he's trying to escape from the Martians. Like, the sheer amount of destruction that Park Hill causes in the first half of this story is shocking. Um, something that we are especially attuned to because his wife is really upset by all of this. Like, she is the one who doesn't want Park Hill to have the gun in the first place, and the fact that Park Hill is destroying all this stuff just makes her that much more upset, even when it becomes really obvious to her that the Martians don't want to hurt him. Even after he's killed, like, dozens of Martians, they still just want to talk to him. So finally the Martians manage to corral him, he goes back to his hot dog stand, and they, in a move that still kind of baffles me, they give him half of Mars. Like, they apparently have deeds written in some kind of Martian hieroglyphic, and they give him these deeds, and apparently Park Hill owns now literally half of Mars. And it's not clear to me, A, that this was a thing. Like, again, you know, if we are to follow the, the parallel between the Martians and the Native Americans that, that Bradbury kind of lays out for us in the first half, like, back in when we met Chiroke in, uh, in The Moon Still Be As Bright, the indication that, you know, the Martians would give the, the land over to the humans is kind of tough to believe, but the idea that the Martians think that the land can be owned is pretty difficult in its own right. Um, there's no claim for the humans here, and this, you know, the, there's no reason to think that the Martians would have any claim to this land as far as the humans are concerned in the first place. Like, why Park Hill sees this as, you know, a big deal is kind of beyond me. Um, what's the reasoning behind it? The reason why the Martians give over these deeds becomes more obvious, though, in the, in the last couple of pages. Namely, this is where one of the most shocking events in the whole book transpires. Um, namely, Park Hill is, you know, he's successfully ha overcome his adventure with the Martians. He has, like, one paragraph where he's like, hey, why didn't they kill me? You know, I don't understand why they wouldn't take their revenge on me after I had hurt so many of them. Again, showing us the, the sort of narrow-mindedness of Park Hill and, by extension, most humans' perspective. 
but shortly afterwards, the Earth rises over the horizon, like Park Hill and his wife look up to see the Earth, and we're told that it is destroyed. Part of it seemed to come apart in a million pieces, as if a giant jigsaw had exploded. It burned with an unholy dripping glare for a minute, three times normal size, then dwindled. We are given a glimpse of Earth's destruction from Mars. Park Hill looks out over the horizon the way that we might look at Venus or, or Mars in the early morning or, or the late evening, and he sees Earth destroyed, destroying itself. We're told later in one of the vignettes that apparently like the nuclear stockpile in Australia had exploded, just totally wiping out the entire Australian continent. The description here seems to suggest that it's way worse than that. Like, literally, a chunk of the Earth has fallen off visibly in the sky. Like, if you've ever seen Mars in the night sky, you know that's really, really small. Like, for it to be visible from that distance means this was a huge catastrophe, more than any atom bomb, uh, or at least more than any nuclear detonation we've ever experienced on Earth. So, this is huge. This is the end of the world level destruction. Um, this is radical change. Um, and the response here, like the, the sort of killer moment here, um, is that Park Hill has been preparing for all of these emigrants from, from the earth to arrive and to start trafficking this highway and to, you know, buy his hot dogs. And if anything, that's become even more relevant and important now that he owns half of Mars and could theoretically, like, offer housing and, you know, sell the land to various people. Park Hill's in a great position to become rich, something that he apparently doesn't appreciate because he's so obsessed with his damn hot dogs. But then when the Earth is destroyed, his wife gets the last word here, what a swell spot for a hot dog stand, she said. She reached over and picked a toothpick out of a jar and put it between her front teeth. Let you in on a little secret, Sam, she whispered, leaning toward him. This looks like it's going to be an off-season. So all of Park Hill's dreams are lost here. He is expecting a wave of immigrants from a planet that has winked out of existence, that has utterly destroyed itself. And the irony here is pretty palpable. Especially because the suggestion, at least from the Martians, is that the reason why they're giving Park Hill all that land in the first place is because they know that this is going to happen, because they foresee this act of destruction. And while we might be tempted to sort of interpret this story and appreciate it in the greater context of this novel, honestly, I think that that weakens the story. Um, trying to understand sort of the greater themes as they apply to this story, like Park Hill and his irreverence for Mars versus, you know, the Martians' response to him, you know, in the wake of the fact that the Earth is about to be destroyed and that parallelism between the Martian culture and the, the Earth culture, the human culture, is finally, like, made really obvious and evident. Um, trying to understand it in this greater context makes this story pretty difficult to parse. But if you look at it, again, as its own story, not as a sort of recapitulation of these greater sweeping themes of, you know, Martian culture and human culture, but instead look at it purely in respect of the characters we are seeing. The last coterie of Martians, you know, sailing their beautiful ships across the, the plain, trying to reach out to Park Hill, who keeps shooting and destroying them because 
presumably the Martians know that the Earth itself is about to be destroyed, and they are in the in an act of frankly astonishing generosity and compassion, taking pity on Park Hill and granting him half of the planet that they both live on because all of the humans, this is all they have left. That makes a lot more sense. Like, literally the very next vignette emphasizes this new theme that is going to be constant about the Martian occupation of, or the human occupation of Mars. Namely, everyone is going home. For the rest of this book, we are going to see Mars steadily deserted, just as quickly as it was colonized and inhabited in the first place, perhaps even more quickly. And the most striking details of this story are going to emphasize the lack of human occupation, the human disappearance from this novel, just as the Martians disappeared from the first half of the novel. Um, with that in mind, this story doesn't seem to work with that particular detail forthcoming. Um, Park Hill, st like, standing there on the middle of Mars, realizing that nobody is coming to Mars, makes less sense when we realize that he and all the people he knows are going to be leaving Mars to go back to Earth to participate in the war or whatever is going on there. Um, and the, the sort of sacrifice that the Martians have made, giving the humans on this planet half the land so, you know, they can inhabit Mars definitely doesn't make sense, given how few people are actually going to be on Mars for any for much longer. Um, so, in that context, the story doesn't work. But the story as story does. If, again, viewed as a story of compassion versus sort of a human aggression, as the communication of one dying and almost dead race handing out this last opportunity for the salvation of another dying and soon-to-be-dead race, that is really impressive. But the assumption has to be that Earth is not just hurt, wounded, but actually destroyed, actually lost. Uh, something that the rest of the novel really doesn't support all that well. Uh, so with that in mind, let's look at the next couple of, of chapters. Uh, we get the Silent Towns, which, honestly, on this one, I feel like the less said about it, the better. Um, the basic premise here is that, like, this random dude, Walter Grip, was away, like, in the backwoods of his little Martian plantation while the catastrophe on Earth happened. So by the time that he, like, actually comes to town, nobody is there, and he's basically the last man on Mars. Um, he does, in fact, start reaching out to others after his initial euphoria, and he gets in touch with this woman, who he has apparently been searching for a wife for a very long time, but when he, in fact, meets her, she is repulsive to him, and he leaves her and hides away and never talks to anyone again. Um, which is, on the one hand, like, we've heard this story before, we, we know the last man on Earth trope, like, th this one's been done, and it's been done better, for that matter. Um, Bradbury's story is a little effective, but that Bradburyan twist of, you know, the, the classic Twilight Zone kind of irony, where it's like, oh, and it's actually, she's really ugly and fat! It's like, uh, why would you do that? Like... It's really a bummer, and Genevieve doesn't really get nearly the characterization that I would have hoped for uh, in a story that literally has only two characters, and both of them the last people on the planet. Uh, like, Genevieve is just presented so horribly and, and repugnantly, and she's just grotesque. 
Um, it's really kind of unfortunate. Um, like it works as a as a twist, but at what cost? Kind of, and the story kind of falls flat as a consequence. I think um, the long years, though, I do think has some merit to it. Um, this is the third of our stories that deals with the remainder of the fourth expedition, namely the same captain is meeting with Hathaway, the guy who was, like, scouting the Martian cities before the, the initial, like, expedition landed. Um, and it turns out that Hathaway has apparently stayed on Mars, like, he has not gone back home. Um, but what's worse, like, he's living here with his family, who are acting a little erratically, we see at the beginning of the story. Um, and by the end, it's very much revealed that they are painstakingly crafted robots. Um, that his family died of some unknown disease, like, decades ago. And Hathaway has been living out his life entirely in solitude, building these robots and letting them serve as, as again, this facsimile for his family. Um, in the story, Hathaway himself dies, and the question then falls to the captain whether or not, like, what to do about these robots. And he ultimately decides to just let them do their thing. Um, he ultimately decides that Hathaway has created something of extraordinary and incredible beauty here. Um, and that that is worth letting go? Like, worth allowing to do its own thing? And I find this to be kind of interesting in this context, and particularly this point in the novel. Like, again, as a story, it works. It's got that same sort of Twilight Zone, Bradburyan twist. Um, that you see from a lot of these stories in the back half of the Martian Chronicles, or even some of the ones in the first half, if we understand them through that lens. Um, we see that sort of deconstruction of, of the original, like, archetypes here. Um, but at the same time, it gets us something that is sort of running counter to a lot of what this novel has told us so far. Um, like, we've been told that human ingenuity and human ambition and human desire tends to be destructive. You know, it kills the poor Martian who is pre uh, presenting himself as the Lafarge's son. It is the, the impetus that leads all the trees to grow up and destroy the Martian cities. It is, you know, the, the fourth expedition partying and, and, you know, carelessly shooting out the windows of Martian towers that, you know, just destroys Spender's vision of, of this, like, archaeological effort to, to preserve and, and protect the, the, what the Martians have left behind. Um, we've seen over and over and over again humans destroy with their own sort of ideas for what they want and what they want Mars to be. Their colonization efforts have in fact destroyed things. Here though, as much as this is kind of twisted, as much as we should definitely take a step back and say to ourselves, you know, it's really uncomfortable that Hathaway's family is dead and in his misery, in his loneliness, he has crafted these robotic simulacra of his family, you know, at the one, on the one hand, we should be, you know, repulsed by this. This is uncomfortable. This is not, like, these are not human beings. On the other hand, though, the story very much presents it as a work of incredible ingenuity by a brilliant man. Um, and they, as much as they are disappointed that Hathaway has died, they very much have their own lives, their own objectives, their own sort of reasons to exist. So when the captain leaves them there, that's an act of mercy in some sense. It is an act that appreciates the creative ingenuity here, and a true act of creation in that sense. 
um, like Hathaway has made something beautiful and real and enduring. Something that, you know, some positive good out of all of this Martian misery, so to speak. Um, that's how it is very much presented to us, and that's, I think, how we're meant to take it. Like, where all of these stories have emphasized the destructive aspects of human ambition and ingenuity, here we are seeing, here we see that that isn't the whole story. There is another side to this. One can also truly and earnestly create, even if this does have the same sort of, you know, failed aspirations, you know, trying to band-aid a, a real existential problem, the theming that we've seen a lot in the course of this story. I think Bradbury is turning the moral here. Um, we've gone from human desires being the destructive force that have ruined at this point two civilizations, not just one, to the, the human desire actually creating something beautiful and new. Um, now, the last two stories I do want to talk about, because these are two of the strongest um, stories in the entire collection. Um, there Will Come Soft Rains is another one of those that I find incredibly evocative, and one of my favorites in the whole collection, and one of the most memorable to boot. Like, if Usher 2 is the one that I just remember despite wanting to forget it, um, There Will Come Soft Rains is just one of my favorite Bradbury short stories altogether. Uh, once again, it takes place on Earth. Uh, we are told that this is a house in California, and it is empty. But it is also a rich person's house, and it is completely automatic in that specifically 1950s, you know, G George Jetson vision of the future, automation everywhere sort of way. Um, so, like, you know, the, the entire story is the house just going about its day, even though the people themselves are gone. So, like, breakfast is prepared for them, and then after a couple hours when it's not eaten, it's all scraped into the garbage. And then, like, the card tables come out, and then they're folded back into the walls. And in the evening, like, we get the poem, there will some, uh, with a famous line, there will come soft rains and the smell of ground and swallows circling with their shimmering sound. The emphasis in Teasdale's poem being nature reclaiming the world after humans' disappearance without pitying or wanting them to be there in the first place. As she writes, and not one will know of the war, not one will care at last when it is done. Not one would mind neither birth nor tree if mankind perished utterly. That's the emphasis here. Like, this is the last standing house on this street. The last one that is automatically maintaining its own routines. And there is something strangely haunting about this. Like, this is literally a haunted house. A house haunted by the people who used to live here who are now dead. And we were, in fact, told what happened to them. They were all out in the front yard when the bomb went off, and there's actually this really potent image of uh, the, the front wall of the house, like, otherwise completely covered with ash and, and darkness, all the, the paint stripped off. But there are, in fact, five images, like, blasted into the paint, where the paint actually still exists, because it was shielded from the blast by the bodies of the people who used to live there. Dad mowing the lawn, mom watering the, or watering the uh, plants, the son and daughter throwing the ball, and literally the imprint of the ball as well. Like, these are the old Chernobyl images, like, the, the silhouettes of people just 
blown into the walls from where the explosion took place. Um, like, this is what Bradbury is suggesting here, that the house continues in spite of the fact that its occupants are literally graven into the walls, no longer alive or in existence. Um, importantly, though, the house does, in fact, take fire and burn. Um, we're introduced to the incinerator in the basement, which lurks like bale, like aggressively burning all of the things uh, that are that are you know thrown out by the various automated devices throughout the house. Um, but then finally, we're we're told that like the fire, there, there's a fire that catches from the stove, um, the cleaning salt, or no, the a tree breaks through the house, like a, a tree branch falls through, ignites the cleaning solvents, and then that just picks up and goes from there unstoppably. Um, and the fire is even characterized here. Like one of my favorite images, uh, is, like there's this back and forth between the fire and the automated fire suppression services of the house. Um, somewhere sighing, a pump shrugged to a stop. The quenching rain ceased. The reserved water supply, which had filled baths and washed dishes for many quiet days, was gone. The fire crackled up the stairs, fed upon Picassos and Matisses in the upper halls like delicacies, baking off the oily flesh, tenderly crisping the canvases into black shavings. Now the fire lay in beds, stood in windows, changed the colors of drapes, and then reinforcements. From attic trap doors, blind robot faces peered down with faucet mouths, gushing green chemical. The fire backed off, as even an elephant must at the sight of a dead snake. Now there were twenty snakes, whipping over the floor, killing the fire with the cold, clear cold venom of green froth. But the fire was clever. It had sent flame outside the house, up through the attic to the pumps there. An explosion! The attic brain which directed the pumps was shattered into bronze shrapnel on the beams. The fire rushed back into every closet and felt of the clothes hung there. Like, notice the imagery. And this is, this is pure, gorgeous Bradbury. Like, all of these, again, evocative details. The fire crackling, giving us the noise images, feeding upon Picassos and Matisses like delicacies. Um, we get the fire laying in beds, standing in windows, changing the drapes, uh, backing off when it is threatened by the chemical, but cleverly mounting the outside of the house where it gets to the pumps, and then rushes back into the closets and, like, feels all of the clothes almost as though it is perverse in some way like it's just oh, such great imagery like this is Bradbury at his absolute best here like just turning all of those details and using it to just make this like poetic symphony of, of various tactile details while also emphasizing like undermining its own point with the the context you know, here is the fire that is being depicted as though it's clever and destructive, that, like, reaches into places, and also kind of has this perverse or stalkerish behavior where it's, like, going around touching the clothes, laying in the beds. But at last the house is destroyed, and there's nothing left but the one wall constantly chiming the date. And the emphasis here is that this is, this is it, like... The earth being destroyed that we were shown earlier on is confusing as this image might be in the greater context of what's going on. Like, are there people coming back from earth? Are there people going to earth? Again, taken in isolation, the house standing alone, the 
images of the, the people who used to live there graven into the wall, the house taking care of itself, maintaining itself, keeping up with some sort of day-to-day -day business that has long since stopped mattering. That's where this story truly shines, just buttressed by all of those sorts of out-of-sync details about the fire or about the, the little automated devices continuing to keep up with their business. There's something very domestic about this and something truly horrifying in the juxtaposition of how it's all empty, meaningless, now that there are no humans to take care of it. And this is the second to last story in here. Like, this is all we're ever going to see of Earth in this world again. Like, completely destroyed, no humans left except, again, the images graven into the walls. Like, that's all that remains of the once proud, once brash, once impetuous and, and, you know, unhealthily ambitious human civilization. That and whoever's left on Mars. Um, which brings us to the last story, The Million Year Picnic. And this is, like, if we saw the beginning of a moral turn with the story of Hathaway making his sort of robotic family and this legacy of human beings living on in their creations, um, here we see this kind of final coda on the subject, like this final thematic closure. Um, here we have Dad and this family of, of kids, especially, going to Mars on what is supposed to be a fishing trip, but the kids know it's not, and Dad knows it's not, and finally we're told, this is it. They've left Earth in advance of the war, apparently, or as one of the last survivors of the war, and they're going to live on Mars, along with one other family who they know is coming, and maybe a couple of other people who will trickle in along the way. Like, at this point, all we know is that there's, like, maybe two, three, or four other people on Mars at this point, like Grip and poor Genevieve, um, as well as Hathaway's robotic family and the hundred or so Martians left alive after Park Hill's genocidal spree, they're going to come and live on Mars, and importantly, like the kids keep asking, are we going to see any Martians? And Dad keeps saying, yes, yes, we will see Martians. And when, in fact, it comes time, and they're like, hey, can we see the Martians now? And Dad says, yes, let's go see the Martians. He goes down to the canal and shows them their reflection in the water. They are Martians. They are throwing away everything that used to connect them to Earth. Like, Dad even has this moment where he burns all of these documents um, to sort of emphasize their disconnection from the, the Earth society. Um, but importantly, the documents are not like books or art or literature or any of the things that Bradbury will, you know, declaim burning in Fahrenheit 451 or even in Usher 2. Instead, it is government bonds, business graph, 1999, religious prejudice, an essay, the science of logistics, Problems of the Pan-American Unity, Stock Report for July 3rd, 1998, The War Digest. Each one of these he burns, and thus burns all of his connection to the routine and the problems of being on Earth. We are going to have new problems, because we are not from Earth, we are Martians, he emphasizes. What Data is suggesting here, what this new colony of Martians are, is going to look like, is not indebted or beholden to the Earth that has gone before. We are not the race that builds hot dog stands in Karnak or on Martian highways. We are going to be something new entirely. Not Martian the way that the old Martians were, not human the way that the gross humans of Earth were. We are going to create something new here.
And this is laden with imagery that Bradbury would find compelling and important. Again, it's largely told from the perspective of the kids. We never hear mom and dad's name. They are just mom and dad to us. So we are very rooted in these kids' perspectives. And this is something that Bradbury will often do in his short stories. Like, we'll see this again in The Illustrated Man, and definitely in Something Wicked This Way Comes. Um, this is a new outlook, a fresh perspective, and these kids are the future. Like, these three boys, along with their soon-to-be sister, and when Mr. Edwards arrives, he's bringing daughters with them, so we can, in fact, start a new society here. Like, without the creepy incest details creeping in for quite a while, like, what Bradbury is emphasizing is we have an opportunity for a fresh start. This was what Mars was supposed to be. But instead, we carried with us all of our biases, all of our assumptions. The obvious ones, like Biggs wanting to celebrate and party on a planet he didn't understand and ultimately getting killed for it. Like Park Hill trying to turn Mars into some sort of, you know, economic opportunity with his hot dog stand on the, the long highway from one city to another. Even like Spender, with his sort of archaeological expectations and trying to sort of recapture the Martian culture despite not being Martian himself. What Bradbury is saying is that this provides us an opportunity for true creation, for real wonder, not for, you know, being stuck in the ways of old cultures or old societies, getting stuck in the ways of old problems and old concerns and old preoccupations. No, we have an opportunity to take the best of what we have learned take all of the technological advancements we've had and actually apply some real morality to them as well. You know, Dad emphasizes that technology is at least part of the problem here. As he says, I'm burning a way of life, just like that way of life is being burned clean of earth right now. Forgive me if I talk like a politician. I am, after all, a former state governor, and I was honest, and they hated me for it. Life on Earth never settled down to doing anything very good. Science ran too far ahead of us too quickly, and the people got lost in a mechanical wilderness. Like children making over-pretty things, gadgets, helicopters, rockets, emphasizing the wrong items, emphasizing machines instead of how to run the machines. Wars got bigger and bigger and finally killed Earth. That's what the silent radio means. That's what we ran away from. What Bradbury is saying is that there's nothing wrong with the things that we made on Earth. Nothing wrong with the technology, nothing wrong with the art, nothing wrong with the literature, nothing wrong with the, you know, robots that we make to, like, represent our families. You know, as much as there are a lot of examples of human desire getting the best of people and being ultimately destructive in this book, as much as there is this sort of overarching theme of, you know, aggressive expansion causing destruction, aggressive invention, you know, distorting and destroying the beautiful things that were there before, as much as that is a constant refrain throughout, Bradbury is also saying that you still need to do that to some degree. You just have to be moral about it. You have to take your time with it. The problem isn't that we are colonizing Mars. The problem is that when we show up, we throw a bunch of drunken parties, we throw up all over this beautiful Martian architecture, and we don't appreciate the world that we have been given. We are, like Spender, ripping Mars apart. We are tearing the skin off until we can make it our own, and that's not what it's for. What we are seeing here in the Million Year Picnic is instead a group of Earth people 
operating in a respect of humility to the place that they are. Not turning it into something that they want, but instead learning how to be with this thing. Not like Park Hill shooting Martians because he's afraid they're going to kill him, but instead, and not like Spender just preserving it for the sake of preserving it, but more like the captain, taking it at face value, doing the best with what he can, preventing as much destruction as he can, and trying to appreciate as much as he can of the culture that he's dealing with here. And this is what Bradbury has been emphasizing this whole way. This is the wonder that he's been keenly talking about this whole time. There is a grand opportunity here. And he hopes, I assume, that we do not follow the track of Biggs or Park Hill or the Lafarges or any of these people who think that they can control this world by sort of squeezing out profit or making it fit their own desires. Instead, Bradbury wants us to sit and to wonder, to appreciate it, to understand it before we start making changes, to acknowledge and admire the things that have gone before. And even if he does misstep sometimes along the way, like, again, you know, we have our version of Way in the Middle of the Air where he clearly doesn't do enough appreciation and does show up, stomp all over the place and break things in his enthusiasm. Again, that, like, inventiveness and creativity often has a second cost to it, and it's kind of ironic that Bradbury does some harm here in his exuberance to make stuff. Um... As much as that is also a risk here, at the end of the day, Bradbury's moral holds. We should sit back, appreciate, understand, recognize the value of the things that we have, rather than clamoring to sort of impose value or to just make for the sake of making without recognizing the consequences of these actions. The things that Bradbury chooses for Dad to burn, the government bonds and the religious prejudices and so on and so forth, it's an interesting mixed bag here. Because on the one hand, like, I sit here as a scholar and I'm like, I would really like to read that book on religious prejudices, but I recognize that it has no place here on Mars. That it won't apply anymore. That part of the reason why you write a book like that isn't necessarily to sort of unravel or solve these problems, but also to exploit them. And that's kind of the overarching message here. You know, Business Graph 1999, Government Bonds, The Science of Logistics, Problems of the Pan-American Unity, Stock Report. Like, the things that we are obsessed with in our culture are the things that Bradbury most dislikes and distrusts. Our pursuit of wealth, our pursuit of power, our pursuit of, you know, understanding the world so we can manipulate and exploit it, these are things that Bradbury hates. And over and over, the people who do these things, the people who are trying to turn a profit from Martian living, or who only want Mars as a place where they can get drunk and party, or the people who want to turn Martians into their own children to sort of console themselves for the losses that they've suffered, like, as reasonable as these desires may be, Bradbury rejects them. And instead says we should be recognizing what Mars has to offer first and foremost. We should be looking at what our world is giving us without us having to steal it, strip it, or take it before we start talking about how and what we need to change. Technology is a great advantage in Bradbury's world. It's something that he often celebrates, often gets excited about. But he recognizes that it has to walk hand in hand with morality.
We can't just invent new technology for the sake of inventing new technology. We have to know what it's going to do to us and for us. And I mean, this obviously is, as much as it was important and impressive in 1950 with the invention of the atom bomb and also, you know, all of the new advances in, like, rocketry and potential space technology, we should also recognize it now in the 21st century, now that the Internet is completely out of our control and is causing untold amount of damage and trouble, as well as giving us great opportunities and more opportunities for wonder, something that Bradbury certainly would have appreciated, but all without our understanding, all once again outpacing our ability to understand or appreciate or use it in careful measure. You know, the internet is destroying lives because we don't understand it, because we don't realize what it can do to us as much as it can do for us. And there are more than enough people out there who are not interested in trying to achieve a measured relationship, but instead are trying to get as much money out of exploiting the people who are addicted to social media or who are, you know, being, being pressured or exploited by advertising techniques, you know, who are in fact abused and bullied by these internet sites and this internet outlook, um, then there are people who are actually interested in learning how to use it for our own good. Um, that's what Bradbury is suggesting here. Um, and the Martian Chronicles over and over again is that lesson of hubris, that recognition that humans need to look up more than they look down, to recognize that we are small and tiny in the scope of the universe and we need to step lightly when we walk out into it, um, something that we are not especially keen to do. Um, so that's my take on the Martian Chronicles. Like, it is a weird book, for sure. Again, up and down a lot. Um, but, you know, I've hardly dealt justice to, to a lot of the stories in here. And, you know, again, like, there's, there's certainly more to be said. Um, but we are moving on. Next time, we are going to read the first half of Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. Um, Fahrenheit 451 is, bro is broken into three sections, which don't really line up neatly with, you know, like, cutting it in half. Um, so we are going to stop halfway through book two, The Sieve in the Sand, after the first major scene where Montag is on the train listening to Denim's Dentifrice, once we get to the, the section break there, that's where we'll stop. Um, so next time we are going to read the whole of, of book one of Fahrenheit 451, The Hearth and the Salamander. Um, we will start book two, The Sieve in the Sand, and we will break my edition, which is like the fancy 60th anniversary edition with all the extra literature and commentary. Like I have multiple editions of this one because I just love it so much. Um, it's page 76. Um, but yeah, right after the Denim's, Denim's Dentifrice scene, we will stop and we will talk about all of that in our next lecture. Um, I look forward to it. Oh my gosh, like I love this book so much. I swear I read it like every year. Um, it is as formative as books get to my life and my outlook. Um, so hopefully I'll be able to, you know, say something intelligible and not just sit here gushing for an hour and a half. Anyway, whatever it turns out to be, intelligible or unintelligible, gushing or, you know, incisive criticism, whatever it is, I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. 
And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and, and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing. And as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.